0: Welcome to the Always Better Than Yesterday podcast. I am your host, Ryan Hartley. This podcast is for heart centered leaders just like you. I hope our time spent together helps you leave a heart print where those around you are left better than yesterday. These interview sessions are sponsored by our great friends at Elevate Online Marketing. On today's episode, we are going to reflect on the interview sessions from 2022 and revisit some incredible guests who have joined us throughout the year. It really is a blessing to be able to share time and space, both with yourselves and our world-class guests. Just wanna thank you for helping us reach 138 countries and putting us in the top 200 charts in 48 countries. This year, we have published our 200th interview session, passed 100,000 podcast downloads, and had over 150,000 views. On our podcast reels and we've even had a couple of videos removed from social media due to a certain guest who will be up later in the show you're gonna hear some highlights from 10 of my favorite episodes from 2022 i hope that you enjoy them if you are listening to them for the first time head to the show notes and you can get the link to the full episode. If you've listened to all of our featured guests this year, I am super, super grateful for you being here. You are amazing. And thank you so much for showing up every single week. If you are new to the show, then please do go back and listen to some of the amazing human beings that we've been fortunate enough to bring you on this podcast. I hope that this highlight really inspires you to go back, soak it all in and hopefully be better than you were yesterday. Lastly, a huge thank you to Elevate Online Marketing for supporting the show and hosting our five-year anniversary earlier this year. We are grateful for you and we're grateful for Matt Robinson who has produced all of the video content for this podcast, helping us leave a greater heartprint. Be sure to connect with Elevate Online Marketing and Matt Robinson using the links in the show notes. But here we go, highlights from 2022 on the Always Better Than Yesterday podcast interview sessions. On episode 163, back in January, I was joined by the legendary Dr. Bruce Lipton, the author of best-selling book, The Biology of Belief. What an honour and a privilege it was to share space and time with with Dr. Bruce. I found this one pretty tricky. It was hard to um, navigate a a two-way conversation because Bruce was just... So energized, so passionate about the things that he was talking about, particularly around the way with which the world has navigated the pandemic and the way that certain governments have and, and people within government have have made um, certain decisions, and some of the things that Bruce shared with me in that episode caused <laughs> caused the video to be taken down from YouTube for violating some of their um, policies around the pandemic and, and contrary to what the World Health Organization have mandated. Uh, this is a guy that's got 50 to 60 years worth of cell biology experience and it was incredible to be able to share time and space and share his um expertise his views and his, his opinions thankfully the podcast is still live you can go and get that using the show notes um but here's a, a little clip from episode 163 with dr bruce slipton
1: if you're not dealing with the outside in, a, in an open way to support and be the gardener yeah, then you are destroying the garden without contributing anything positive we're stepping all over it and the web of life is collapsing, that's why we're facing what is called the sixth mass extinction of life. Human behavior Mm -hmm. is undermining nature. And it's like, oh yeah, but the indigenous people was the other way around. Nature is a garden, let's go and help nature, okay? You know, I mean, I can just imagine uh, like the Native Americans, when they needed a buffalo, they used every little piece of that buffalo. Every piece, the skin, the hooves, the bones, the meat, everything was used. And then the white people came west, and what did they want? Buffalo skin. And there were thousands of buffalo. What did they do? Shoot 1,000 buffalo. And then do what? Take the skin, leave all the rest of the buffalo on the ground. Mm. The Indians were like, what? You crazy people. You're crazy. Mm. So we killed them. So now there's nobody to say we're crazy anymore, you know? (laughs) Get rid of the indigenous people. Why? Because they're the ones that are spiritual and in connection with the earth and its harmony. Interesting point. Wherever Britain took over a country, they essentially rounded up and defeated the indigenous people because they had a different belief system. The indigenous people were the ones that would kill one buffalo. The the people who came over killed 1,000 buffalo, Don't even care about the meat. Don't care Mm -hmm. about anything. Just leave it rot. Oh, beavers. We're going to make beaver hats. Kill all the beavers. Make lots of hats. And I go, so our world is antagonistic to the indigenous people. And therefore, the big issue was to eliminate the indigenous people. Mm -hmm. And they did that. In America, they killed millions of Native American Indians in Canada, they did the same thing. Aboriginals in Australia, they did the same thing wherever they went, okay? Mm. Africa, wherever, except New Zealand. Mm. I go, what's different about New Zealand? The British army couldn't beat the natives. Hmm. The Maori were much more fierce warriors than the British could ever imagine. Mm. And it's the only country on this planet where the British had to sign a treaty with the natives because they couldn't get rid of them. Mm. I go, and what's the significance today of that? And I go, the Maori Aboriginal voice is part of the governments, part of the culture, part of the world. Their spirituality built into the country because it's built from the original Maori who were there. Mm. They even have such honoring of the environment that they were one of the first countries to do what? take a piece of the environment that they felt was, you know, their spiritual places, certain like a mountain, like Mount Taranaki, which looks like uh, Mount Fuji in Japan. Uh, uh, and what did they do? They took the area, they marked it off, and then they said, what? We're going to have people represent nature. Mm. So while people had government representatives in the government representing them, mm. that three or four different sites in in New Zealand now are run by actually people who represent nature. Mm. So before you go into Mount Taranaki area, you have to get the approval of the local representatives of nature before you could disturb nature. Mm. And all of a sudden, that was one of the first places on the planet where nature was given a voice for the first time that said, don't destroy this piece of property right here. This is spiritual and safe from you. And the rest of the world says, ah, if you can take something out of it, get it. Mm-hmm. You know What we do to the American natives? We gave them the worst piece of crap land after we pushed them off from the fertile, rich, beautiful places they lived and said, you can live in the desert. <laughs> and that was really cool until guess what? Mm-hmm. Ooh, you got uranium under your desert. Well, now move you over, go over here, because we're going to take the uranium. Uh, and so basically, we got rid of indigenous belief. And I go, but the indigenous people were the only ones, the Druids in England and, and around that area, were the only ones that recognized nature as a living system. Yeah, And, and we, we don't own nature. That's a, 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 a mission statement of science from Francis Bacon way back. Francis Bacon set the mission statement of science, Mm -hmm. which is what? To control and dominate nature. That's Mm -hmm. the mission. Mm -hmm. And and I said, well, how's that working out? I go, well, we're facing a mass extinction. I don't think it's working out pretty good (laughs) because we've undermined nature to the point it won't support us.
0: On episode 180, back in June, I was joined by James McRae. You will probably know him from Instagram as Words Are Vibrations. We had an incredible conversation about creativity, and I hope that listening to this, if you've not heard the full episode with James, that it inspires you to go check out the full conversation and that at the end of it, it inspires your soul-led creativity, your heart-led creativity. Here we go, 180 with James McRae, Words Are Vibrations. As I talk about heart-centered leadership the world's intellect drunk the world's mindset crazy and and turn trying to find the right words so that the world can understand um, some of these approaches hats off to you my friend how have how have you found that creative process for yourself personally
2: yeah so it's been a journey you know i think my my the last 10 years of my life have been a journey so, like like what you just said from the head to the heart yeah from the mindset to the heart set yeah because if i look back in some of my earlier work it's very much intellectual it's like mm-hmm. you know i'm i'm trying to reach a conclusion with the mind and mm-hmm. and the mind is i think by nature a, a limited tool it's a very amazing tool mm-hmm. but it's not if it's if you're only relying on the mind as your yeah. intellectual navigation yeah. um to experience the world you're going to be limited and then what happens is we end up creating an intellectual abstraction of, of the world mm-hmm. and that's when everything just exists as theoretical numbers and that's when like wall street is using this th- theoretical abstraction of wealth to move money around and not provide any value right yeah, yeah, and yeah. it's a it's just a completely disembodied from from the heart so the mind is an amazing tool, but if it's not married to the wisdom of the heart, it's going to ultimately lead you astray, no matter how smart it is. Sometimes I listen to like philosophers or speakers, yeah. and they're so smart. And I'm like, wow, I've never heard such a smart articulation of something that's so wrong.
3: <laughs> Do you know what I mean? <laughs> <Yeah>.
2: <laughs> because it's yeah. not grounded in like a in like yeah. an understanding. Like an uh, a heart centric yes. understanding, which will really grounds it and gives it a, a deeper wisdom. So I've had my own journey personally to to reconnect with that heart, you know, whether that's through various practices, mm-hmm. um you know plant medicine, yep. um, yoga, meditation, di- different spiritual lineages that I've not only yep. studied but practiced which have given me a deeper connection to, to, to my heart and you know, reconnecting with that mm. dormant feminine energy that mm. I think we all need to wake up in ourselves and in the world to, to restore that balance, right? So, so now my creative process is very much starting with the heart. I think that emotions are um, upstream of thoughts. By which I mean, like, we can sense some, something with our feelings yeah. before we can intellectualize it. Mm-hmm. So we, we think if we have ideas, right? Oh, I had an idea. I I tend to think that ideas are the mind starting to articulate a bodily sensation that's already there. And then the mind is the next step. It, yeah. it starts as a bodily sensation because that's where... There's a, there's a certain intelligence that the body has, that the heart has, mm-hmm. that emotions have to tune into the collective consciousness. Yeah. Yeah, so yeah, I think yeah. it starts as a feeling, and then the mind picks it up on it, and it, it, it becomes an idea. Yeah, yeah. You get, you get, you people get attached to, to the idea, but it began as a feeling. Yeah. So now I really try to start on the in, in the feeling space, which just means like tuning into my body. Mm and asking myself what I'm feeling. What am I experiencing in this moment? What am I, what is the universe trying to show me? And I really believe we're all connected and, and, and we're all connected from that energetic, emotional place. The mind doesn't connect us. I think the, it's, the, it's, the, it's, it's, it's a bodily sensation that connects us. So when you tune into that feeling, that's when I end up creating things that have the most universal resonance. Yeah, because I'm, I'm not, if I'm feeling something yeah. in, in some way, shape or form, other people are feeling that this also. Mm-hmm. And I'm just articulating it my way, but they can relate to it because it's coming from a shared yeah. experience.
0: On episode 185, back in July, I was joined by Dr. John Gray, author of one of the best-selling books of the 90s, Men Are From Mars, Women Are From Venus. This was such a detailed conversation that spans over a two-part special. I know that if you check out episode 185 now, it will absolutely bless your relationships. Here we go. 185, Dr. John Gray anybody that's lived under a rock for the last 30 years that may not have read your best-selling book give us some of the context
4: it still continues to be a bestseller around the world it's amazing it's some basic understanding of our biology you know there's something called hardware and then there's software and a lot of people's software today is very different than it was 30 years ago which is why i have the later books But some people's software is pretty much the same as it was 30 years ago, and the way it was for a long time. And Because software changes, hardware is hardwired. We are Mm -hmm. are men, we are women. And because of that, we don't instinctively understand where our partners are coming from. Uh, For example, one of the popular ideas of Men Are From Mars is that men go to their caves. And it doesn't mean we're upset with our wives. It could be, anytime a man is stressed, he needs to be quiet for a while. You know, in the ancient days, they would meditate, you know, and in meditation, one of the goals is to forget everything, just to forget everything, empty your <laughs> mind. And that's that was primarily not taught to women. Okay. It was primarily taught to men. And you can go to India and you can find out. Women say, oh, that's very, very difficult. I can't do that. Modern women can learn to meditate and it can be very helpful because they're more on their male side. But they still don't have the hardware of a man, so it's not going to be as easy for them, generally speaking, to let go of the stress of the day by just forgetting it. But the design of men is such that uh, we need downtime, where we're we're producing hormones of masculinity. Mm -hmm. And if we come home and we suddenly start interacting with our family and our wives every day, we're producing the the hormones of nurturing and love and those are feminine hormones now it's okay for us to have feminine hormones but too much will actually push our male hormones down Mm. so we need that cave time and that was a surprise to women many women went oh that's so good because i thought he was angry with me and i wondered why when i asked him a lot of questions he just becomes more angry with me uh (laughs) And his experience is often that, you know, I wasn't angry with you, but now you keep bothering me (laughs) getting angry with you. He needs to have some alone time. And women, on the other hand, need more connection time. Connection creates estrogen, progesterone. These are female hormones that regulate the stress levels in her body. So if she comes home from work and she has some stress, she can talk about it. And just talking about it actually helps her to feel more connected to her partner, helps lower her stress. Mm And she's not always talking about it to get his advice. And that's the big takeaway for men in the book, which is when my wife's talking, she doesn't always want me to interrupt with solutions. And it's literally if you're a bunch of men together and there's a problem, the guy who comes up with a solution first is the hero, right? (laughs) So we're like ready to go. We're Ferraris to give her solutions to show her how capable we are, want to help and so forth. That's not always what's most helpful to her.
0: It's um, it's really interesting. You know, my wife and I—we've been together twenty years this year, so we're like childhood sweethearts, and we almost like got to a point where, you know, we got to that point where we had second child, and we started to do this. And unfortunately, we had a bit where we had to bang our heads together, and and in and in banging our heads together, we we started to to read things like this and and the five love languages, and and then we started to understand that what was love to me wasn't love to her i think that's that's the general premise of of your book isn't it it's understanding that that love means different things like how do you how did you make sense of of that because i i would have needed to have read that book uh far sooner than what i what i did i probably would have benefited from being given that at school age you know
4: well, the first one, one of the chapters in Men Are From Mars, as well, is our, our different love languages. And I take a different approach than Gary Chapman in the five love languages. Mm-hmm. Uh, from my point of view, the five love languages actually, uh, every woman needs those. Okay. Mm-hmm. If she doesn't, she's missing a part of herself. Mm-hmm. I look at it biologically as well biologically whenever you're the recipient of something it produces estrogen mm-hmm. and whatever you're giving producing a result is producing testosterone and men oh. need 10 to 20 times more testosterone than women women need 10 to 20 times more estrogen than men mm-hmm. so literally all of those five love languages is about receiving and many men when they do those will say well my favorite is to is uh, is acts of service but that actually <laughs> Every man wants acts of service. It makes us lazy. Uh, it's when we're serving women, that's what raises their estrogen up to the highest. And many women don't feel, uh, they don't, they they basically value communication a lot more and intimacy. But see all of those five love languages, every man can take note, even though she says she only wants two, uh, or one, all five is what the answer is. And for men, the love language of men, is for women, when men do these things for her, for her to then appreciate and appreciate what he does for her. So that, that's my love language is very gender specific, which is anything you do that meets a woman's need. If she responds to it with appreciation, your testosterone goes up. Second one is anytime you make a mistake and she still loves you and says, it's not a big deal. She's giving you the message. I accept you just as you are. Sometimes Mm. you're wonderful, sometimes you're not, but I love you just the way you are. That's a very powerful thing for men. Men need to feel accepted just the way they are. And women, they wanna be accepted the way they are, but the primary for her is, no, I want you to understand why I'm this way. You know, I'm upset because I've got 50 things going on in my head. I don't want you just to go, hey, no big deal. I'll just watch TV and accept you just the way you are. No, (laughs) she wants you to understand what you're going through. And a lot of these ideas I learned of course, in my world is they're very controversial because they're not taught in universities.
0: On episode 187, back in August, I was joined by our great friend, Bethan Laker. Bethan's had an incredible year of some highs and some lows, starting her business, The Leisure Experts, along with her business partner, Joni Harding, doing incredible things in the swim industry. To finishing off the year, getting married, In April, Bethan lost her best friend, Steph, in a tragic motorcycle accident. Having Bethan on and joining me for this conversation, we talk all around her leadership journey. We talk about her heart set, her values, and we talk about the tragedy of losing her best friend. We talk about the building of the business. And of all the conversations that I've had on the podcast this year, I think it's this one that captured people's hearts the most. So here we go, episode 187. With our great friend Bethan Laker, can we talk about Steph.
5: Yes, <laughs> <laughs> I can try. <laughs> we can try.
0: Talk to us about that friendship,
5: uh, the one and only Steph <laughs> <laughs> So it was, it was a bit of a strange one, actually. So Steph, um, Steph and I hadn't met, but Steph followed me on Instagram in Bristol, um, so not too far away. We would always pass each other when we were out riding,
6: mm-hmm.
5: and one day I just like she was stopped at a petrol station on a roundabout, so I <laughs> rode past her. And she was like jumping up and down. We both rode the same bike; mine was red and hers was white. And um, yeah, jumping up and down. And so I thought, right, I'm gonna go round the roundabout and actually stop. Wow. But I've got a perfect opportunity here. Normally it was like riding past each other.
7: Mm-hmm.
5: So um, yeah, stopped, had a chat, agreed to meet up and go for a ride, and then like the rest is history. We just became the bestest of friends. Um, And just literally just clicked as if we'd known each other forever. So, yeah, the most special, special connection.
1: Then what happened? And then what happened? Uh,
5: (laughs) Oh, God. Steph was involved in a motorbike accident on the 15th of April Mm. this year. And she lost her life.
1: yeah tragic right tragic yeah (laughs) i um.
0: i joined you at her her funeral and i've never seen anything like it i've never experienced i i get it like i think i get it from the outside seeing that community come together seeing um the way that you like pulled together those that video for her and to really kind of celebrate her life like honestly it was it was a, an overwhelming experience and uh, you know I had such admiration for you on that day you know being there and I know that you you know you're you're a, you're a strong leader anyway I know that about you but just seeing the way that you came together for that community and uh yeah it was really really tragic circumstances but a beautiful celebration of of a beautiful human being
5: yeah it's one of those it's a really really weird thing to say but most bikers will say if there's one way that i'm going to go like
8: yeah
5: you know i I want it to be that way because we just love it so much and i think unless unless you ride unless you've ever experienced what it's like like i think it's it's really hard to understand what that means yeah um and yeah Steph. Steph would always say If there's always, if there's one way I'm going to go, I'm going to go on the bike. And, you know, she was on a, her favorite road, the weather was shining, like the sun was shining. Um, But I guess it it can, like I said to you before, it couldn't have been any more perfect really in terms of,
8: you
5: know, the, I guess the day itself. Um, But yeah, you know, from a, from a community perspective, it's, it's one thing that I, I really, really hope that those closest to me see and understand now because there's always this piece I think around biking, you know, bikers have a reputation of probably just being troublemakers, being noisy. Um, and actually it's it's a bunch of people who will be the most welcoming people you've ever met.
4: Mm-hmm.
5: Um, they are the the people in my life who I know, if anything ever happened, like I'd pick up the phone and they would drop everything and they would come like they they are those sorts of people and regardless of where they live if they're eight hours away if they're half an hour away they would drop everything and and come and it's it is very much you know a really really special community and you know for me I just yeah I you know I I hope that those closest to me understand why I would choose to go back to biking after it has taken my best best friend from me so Mm. yeah it's a bit of a strange
0: one. at the back end of august on episode 190 i was joined by craig white the founder of an organization called men without masks craig and his organization are doing incredible things in the men's mental health and well-being space and we have a great conversation about masculinity and all things that help men hope this one helps episode 190 share it with a brother
9: Probably was a spiritual materialist for a while. You know, I remember after that yoga retreat, mate, I remember going home and and thinking, Oh, I'm spiritual. I remember saying to my wife,
0: Get yourself oh, some crystals. Oh,
9: yeah, <laughs> and I, and I, it's like I created two buckets. One yeah. bucket was, Well, I think that's spiritual. So I'll do that and, I, and I'll do that and I'll do that. And these things are not spiritual. So I backed off from sport foolishly thinking that wasn't spiritual. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I deleted shitloads of music on my on my laptop. Yeah. I deleted loads of friends. it was like, yes, now I've got it. And there was such a split inside of me that I was still wearing masks. Sure. And th- thankfully uh, over a period of years because I've integrated more parts of of my own shadows, if you like, and I'm mm. I'm fine with it. When I look at life now, you know whether I'm talking to you on a podcast or whether I'm teaching a mens retreat or working with a rugby team or going on a hike or drinking a glass of water, it's all sacred. Yeah. And and really, my 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 practice, if you like, I mean, what does that word even mean? But my practice has 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 also shifted. I'm 50 now, from routine, Mm -hmm. must do that, must do that, have to do that very external things mm. to just the simplicity of focused attention, no matter what I'm doing, whether I'm drinking a cup of tea or whether I'm lying mm. with the cat or whether I'm sat formally in meditation, it's all mm. just a sacred opportunity to come back to presence.
0: Yeah. That's powerful. Yeah. My, my own wrestling uh I, I spent 13 years in the UK police service and my own wrestling was coming back to surrender, you know, <laughs> yeah. having this illusion that I was figuring it all out and I was working my face off and in control and and surrendering that to a higher power and and being able to give and then receive that unconditional love. That was that was the huge transformation for, for me. And I was very fortunate enough to read a book by a guy called Rob Bell who wrote um everything is spiritual, which mm-hmm. Which kind of helped open my perspective to, in the very early days, to to see that it flows through the essence of of who we are and and where we go. <clears throat> but how did that uh, love for brotherhood lead you to create this uh, this thing called Men Without Masks?
9: Well, I've always uh, when I've when I've done my homework retracing the steps of my life, yeah. um, you know, it, it was evident that. Um, my older brother who's 12 years older than me who probably growing up because my dad was at work all the time was, mm-hmm. I can't remember but he was probably my idol
2: mm-hmm.
9: um, even though I perceived that he bullied me and gave me a hard time but he was still probably my idol he he went in the army when I was eight so I didn't really see much of him after that and um, that must have left a huge void in me. Sure. And. When I was eight, my mother must have picked up on this because that's when I started to play rugby. So I think potentially because of that void um, that I've always changed. Brotherhood has always given me something. It's like, oh, it's Mm -hmm. like medicine. And then um, when I left full-time rugby, when I went through this middle-life crisis, there was a period of, of, of probably about three or four years, Ryan, where I was doing some consultancy. I was dipping my toe in, but there was still... I'm never going to work in rugby ever again, ever. It's mm. egoic. I don't want to do it <laughs> for rugby. And it was then that I created Men With it Masks. I was working with the coach. He said, Right, what have you been doing all your life? Were you comfortable? What's your skill set? What's your talents? He yeah. said, He said, I get that you don't want to work in rugby, but you need to work with men because you can create safe spaces, mm. you can connect with multiple personality types. And you've done all this yoga meditation, bring it all together in a jigsaw. Mm-hmm. And that's when I created Member Without Masks about uh, about five years ago now, and um, and it's still it's still growing. You know, we run different types of retreats, online group support programs, mm-hmm. and um, and I also
1: offer um, private mentorship as well.
7: Heroin's Journey came out in 1990 and um, it, it's had quite a ride for itself. It's right now in 17 languages. Uh, the last uh, copy I got was the Czech copy of the Heroin's Journey and um, when it first came out I heard from women all over the world. It was it was very exciting. It it touched a nerve at the time that it came out in 90 and and it's just had this wonderful life of its own. Mm. Um, in 90, I think it was 98, Shambhala asked me to do a workbook. So the heroine's journey workbook came out then so that women could go through the stages of the heroine's journey, mm. either by themselves or most likely in small groups, um, and that's what happened. Women started to take the exercises mm. in that book and go through all the stages of the heroine's journey.
1: Mm, but I'm... I've
7: been, I've been most um, gratified by the fact that uh, it's even in Farsi. I mean to think about. Uh, the women in Iran being able to read it. I understand that it's heavily redacted, but at least Mm -hmm. they get some sense of a heroic journey for women.
0: Yeah, it's really interesting, isn't it? You know, so much of society, so much of culture is just shaped by these masculine values and ideologies. And one of the things that I really like about, the the heroine's journey is that it doesn't take a pop at the hero's journey it doesn't take the book and go here's everything wrong with that here's why you're wrong here's why i'm right but it's it's a complementary um journey to to with which to set context and understanding it's very i I like the way you've done that And, and and i guess take take me back to that meeting with Joseph Campbell, the author of The Hero's Journey. How did that conversation go with him?
7: Well, um, I knew him uh, because he would come out from New York to do workshops uh, for what was then called the Human Relations Institute. And he's a lovely man, um, a real gentleman and a brilliant scholar and a brilliant teacher. And so I had taken the monomyth or the diagram that he created from gathering myths from all over the world. Um, uh, I had taken that and had been working with that as a teacher at UCLA in the writer's program, we were using the monomyth or the diagram of the hero's journey. And also in therapy groups, I was using it with both men and women um, in a 10 uh, month uh, workshop using all of the stages of Campbell's Mm Hero's Journey. And the more I did that, um, I'm a psychotherapist, so Mm -hmm. I was really looking at it through that lens. The more I did that, the, the less I just felt like something was missing for Mm. women. And Mm. what was clear in uh, doing those workshops is that women were deeply wounded Mm. um, in their feminine nature, and that's what needed to be healed. So when I went back from Los Angeles to New York to show uh, Mr. Campbell my particular, diagram or monomyth, whatever you want to call Mm it. He said to me, Maureen, um, women don't need to make the journey, they're the place that everyone is trying to get to. And I think what he meant mythologically, the feminine is the place that everyone is trying to get to in terms of spirit, Mm -hmm. um, spirituality. But I said, well, that's not my experience because women of my generation had just gotten out into the work world and were doing the hero's journey and it was wounding. And um, so his response really inspired me to finish the book um, because uh, I realized he couldn't really understand what our journey is and yeah. was. Um, he was in his 80s. Yeah. He was married to Jean Erdman, this extraordinary dancer. Mm-hmm. He had his muse. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we didn't have mm-hmm. a muse. So um but uh no I never wanted to say you know the women's journey is one way um in in relationship to his uh, I had enormous respect for him and so that's that's how the book emerged it took me eight years to write the book yeah because it really came out of the experiences of the women I was working with both as writers and also as um patients in my therapy practice.
0: Back in October, I had the honor and privilege to sit down and have a conversation with Dr. Gordon Neufeld on episode 197. Dr. Gordon is the co-author of the book Hold On To Your Kids with Gabor Marte. This conversation really captured the hearts and the minds of many, many of you that are parents. And if you have not listened to this episode and you have children of your own or you're responsible for for young people i highly encourage you to listen to this full episode here we go here's a clip from episode 197 with dr gordon Newfeld.
10: in fact it's never too early the preschoolers is a good age as well to have some sense of how important the child parent relationship is in the scheme of things
0: mm, i'm learning so much and uh It's really interesting, isn't it? Because we're at a time now where there's more resources than ever. There's Mm. more (laughs) parenting experts, shall we say, inverted. Yes. and yet, we seem to be struggling more than ever. Why? Why do you think
10: that is? Well, well there's a hidden secret. It's it's <laughs> nature had already taken care of things. You know, we've been raising children mm. for millennia, for thousands and thousands of years, and uh, and our our uh, other mammals do the same and raise their offspring. So this was all taken care of as long as there was a culture that was uh, was. Uh, uh, congruent with this, but it's a bottom-up arrangement, and that's what what's hidden. People think the mm-hmm. answer is in knowing how to be a father and knowing mm-hmm. how to be a mother, and learning how to do it. And you've got extra things to do if you didn't have good uh, good uh, you know a, a, a functioning family. Yeah. And and so so it's about what you're what you do. So the question is is what should I do? And it's the wrong question because it, it is a bottom-up relationship the the question should be is how do i preserve the natural context in mm-hmm. which parenting would be in, intuitive the child would be easier to take care of would be oh that's the context and, and nobody's asking that, that question because they all think it has to do with them and it doesn't have to do with them like i, I i'll never forget my experience mm-hmm. as a i have seven grandchildren now the last <laughs> one is just two weeks old so wow. I'm, I'm still in the <laughs> uh, in that uh, uh, you know, wonderful afterglow of uh, oh, of the birth of a new grandchild. But I, I remember in the, in grandchildren, I think it was number uh, number five and six. <laughs> they were close in age, boys. They both uh, they were about uh, um, six to nine months of age, and uh, both daughters happened to come on, on the same day. Uh, because they had uh, they had appointments in town for one reason, and the question was, uh, "Is Dad, can you take care of uh, you know of of my boy?" Mm-hmm. So I had two boys there. Now the one was wonderfully attached to me, mm-hmm. and the other one was not. But get the irony: in Canada, I'm known as an expert in parenting, <laughs> and you know, my book was a be- was a bestseller. <laughs> Uh, you know, at that time, I I've, 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 probably, you know, I've, with five kids, I've accumulated so much parenting experience yeah, and yeah. all of this. And yet, I had absolutely no natural power to take care of mm-hmm. the one grandson. He look, one look at me, and I, he knew I was the enemy. I, mm-hmm. I was the one who separated him from his mother. Oh. It, it's, it's a bottom-up arrangement and and that's mm-hmm. what we don't realize we we think it is in the books we read we think it is in the skills mm-hmm. we acquire we think mm-hmm. it is in how hard we work as as a father as a mother we think mm-hmm. it is on mm-hmm. how responsible we are it's a bottom up arrangement all of that counts for nothing if the child does not is not attached to you and so that becomes the priority is a context in which the parent and the, the word context is very interesting because uh, as you know, a con with text words, right? Mm-hmm. It's that which comes with the words, but is not the words. So it's the part mm-hmm. that's invisible. Like Shakespeare, there was a context for all his mm-hmm. plays. Now, he never wrote down that context. He only gave us the script. So we have the script and we have mm-hmm. to rework the context because the context means is everything how you interpret everything and that's the problem is it's hidden from view and that's why we're in more trouble than ever because what is the most significant issue is hidden from view and and uh, that's that's why the book that's why i talk about it (laughs) is is you know to be able to to get the words that can open the door to consciousness
0: At the end of October, on episode 198, I got to sit down with Dr John Demartini. This was probably one of the hardest podcasts I have ever recorded because a little bit of insider information, my internet connection was so bad on this day that I could only hear every third or fourth word. And at one point, I got kicked out of my own Zoom room. But The ever professional that Dr. John is, he continued uh, sharing his wisdom. And another reason why it was so difficult is because he is such a deeply intellectual human being. Some of his concepts will absolutely expand your heart and your mind infinitely. And to try and keep up pace... And be present and engage in a conversation with that level of awareness, consciousness and intellect. It really kept me on my toes. I hope that you enjoyed the conversation. Be sure to check out the full episode, 198, with Dr. John Demartini.
3: So I first got, I guess, fascinated by ADD when I was about 25. And even though I had heard about it, even though I had seen many people with it, I probably had a bit of that myself. I think a lot of people do. I had a young boy brought in by his mother into my office and she was the person who was coming for care, but he was running around and he was running back and forth in a seven and a half by 10 foot room in this little cubicle and he was just running back and forth and hitting the walls, and running back and forth, running back and forth, running back and forth. And it was a bit distracting. And the mother just was kind of ignoring it, but the child was just hyperactive. And then I asked the mother, uh, go to a moment where and when you perceive your son really stop present and engaged. And she says, I don't know, I can't think of it. I said, just stop, reflect. Because mm-hmm. everybody's imposing the labels of hyperactivity on him. Yeah. It says, when he's playing with his train set or doing something with trains. Okay. So I said, I stopped the boy. Well, I didn't stop him. I just said, so do you like, you like trains, huh? And he goes, yep, yep, yep. And he still runs. And I said, what's the longest train you've ever perceived in your life seen in your life and he stopped and he looks up and he thinks, he goes, you mean how many cars? Yeah. How many cars? Wow. Um, 250 cars? Yeah. And I went, great. And how many of those cars were tank cars, box cars, flatbed cars, et cetera, et cetera. I broke them down. He goes.
1: Hmm. He's quiet, focused, not running. And,
3: And then I said, when you look at his space in his room, is there something to do with trains? She goes, uh, he has train models, he has train um, sets sitting up, he's got train magazines, he's got train books, he's got train pictures all of his room. Trains is his thing. I said, so when he's doing trains, he's engaged and he's focused. Now that I think about it, yeah, he can sit down and put a model train together, totally focused and complete that model. And he can read a book on it. I said, he has a concentrated value system and mm. he's trying to fit into a school where it's dispersed and none of them are being linked to the trains. Mm. And so he's disengaged. And so he's he's not he's not in his executive area, he's in the amygdala. And um, I said, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go, you live in Pasadena, Texas. It's a kind of a, I call it the refinery area of town. <laughs> and I said, there's a train that goes, there every day. I want you to take him over there and see and count how many trained uh, cars there are. I want him to do the math on the ratios of all the cars for his study of math. <laughs> I want him to go and find out what country and what language on each of these cars to see how many languages and how many countries is involved in mm-hmm. and see if he can study a bit of language on that and report that to his teacher. Yeah. I want to find out how many of those tank cars, what's the chemistry of those cars, try to find out what is inside those cars, and where they're coming from. And I started to get him engaged and he was like, cool, you writing that down mom? And, and he's like totally engaged in that. And he literally was expecting his mom to take him over there so he could do this research. And he found out how many engines and the ratios of it. So we end up engaging him in mathematics because math was now important to him yeah and sociology because now it was important to him and so and and language because i wanted to study the different words that were all over that and make him study and read so as long as he's focused on that he had attention surplus order attention surplus is, is a part of the thalamus that selectively biases and filters out information on the environment based on what you believe is most important to you, that will help you fulfill it. Wow. And so he believed that that's what he wanted to do. He wanted to be involved in the train industry. Now I have a friend that just sold the Southern Pacific railroad, (laughs) (laughs) that's on the ship with me. And uh, you know, so he was a child that was into trains. And his parents were saying, you you need to go and study over here. But he ended up Mm -hmm. buying a train company and and becoming a billionaire. So, you know, for all we know, that that kid may not be fitting into the average drone training system. He may be dedicated to be one of the great train specialists, for all you know. Mm -hmm. So finding out what is intrinsically valuable to a child and then honoring that and seeing where he's focused or he's focused, she's focused. I guarantee every child has an area where that is. You just got to find it first. Yeah. Narrow down what the values are. And then you have to relate and link the other topics to that. My, I, I'm, I'm really great at that. I can take any kid with any focus and I can take any class and I can link it to them. All of a sudden they're engaged in that class. They now want to learn that class because it's going to get them what they want.
7: Mm.
3: If they don't see how a class is going to help them fulfill what they want, they're not engaged. And they're only going to do short term memory, and it's not going to go in, it's not going to stay, and it's not going to be applied. Mm. But the second they can see how it's going to fulfill what's important to them, now it goes in long-term memory, now it's retained, and now it's applied. Perception decisions and actions change. So in finding out what the, the child's value is, that's one of the things in the seven secret treasure of the book is identifying what the child's values are. In South Africa, we had a township, Alexander township. It's a low Swiss economic area, very, very impoverished and lovely people, but you know, they may make 300, 400, $600 a year.
1: Mm-hmm.
3: And so a dollar a day to $2 a day. The schools were not exactly what you possibly are accustomed to in some more developed countries. I mean, some of them didn't have floors, some of them didn't have desks, some of them didn't have books, you know, kids would come to school if they fed them, that was it. Otherwise they wouldn't come to school. Mm. And there was a 27% pass rate in the school, 27 out of every child that was taking the matric test passed. So it wasn't doing well. So we were asked to go in there uh, by the board of education. And I went in there and I took all the teachers, and identified what their highest values were, most intrinsic value. I took the classes that they were teaching, some of which weren't not inspiring to them, mm. and I did links for three and a half hours. I spent four hours with the teachers, three and a half hours in linking, 30 minutes determining their values, and three and a half hours linking each of the classes to their values so they would be more engaged. Mm. Because a child's not going to want to listen to a teacher that's not inspired by teaching. Mm. You know, if you're teaching a class that's boring and you're not involved in it. No kid's going to listen to it. Yeah. So we got them more engaged. Then we went to the class on the first day of school. We went to the class where the kids are. We found out what their values are. It took about 30 minutes. And then we linked all the classes to their values for three and a half hours. Mm. So four hours, four hours. Then I did one more class where I took the values of the students, all of their individual values. We all did it. we summarized them. And then the teacher had to link those values. How will those values, helping fulfill those values, help them fulfill their own? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And then how is her values can help them fulfill theirs? And we crisscrossed them and had this dialogue for four hours. Yeah. So a total of 12 hours. The engagement level went up. Mm-hmm. At the end of the year, the lady from the Board of Education says, Dr. Demartini, I have something that's going to be something meaningful to you. I said, what's that? She said, we had 97% pass rate this year. Oh, come on. 97. I was expecting 40, 47. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Wow. 97. The reason being is because the teachers got it, the students got it, and they realize that if they're waiting for the teachers to make them intelligent, it's not going to happen. They have to get engaged. And the more they can see how their classes are going to help them fulfill their values, they're going to school because they want to learn. Everybody wants to learn what's important to them.
0: In November, I was joined by Sarah Arnold Hall on episode 199. We had a great conversation about procrastination, about taking action, and about her viral post about showing up daily, doing the best with what you have right where you are. It's a conversation that will absolutely inspire you to take action and to overcome procrastination. It's 199. With Sarah Arnold Hall. The current generation of women are standing on the shoulders of all those that have gone before. Like, what does that really mean to you? What does that really inspire in you?
6: Mm, the idea of that came from my grandma, who mm. is an incredible woman. She's worked so hard to support her community. She actually received an award from the Queen wow. uh, for it, for all of the service she's done for the community. And she, she kind of also talks about standing on the shoulders of the women who got her to be where she is. So the suffragettes who allowed her to be someone who could have a bank account and could have um, the right to own property and lots of, and tons of different other um, fantastic rights that we should all have. And so I was like, well, if she's standing on those shoulders, like then I must be really standing on the shoulders of, of so many other amazing women. And I realized that, actually, it's um, I think it's my duty to go after the things I truly want because so many women in the past couldn't do that, and they are now in the situation or I'm now in the situation where I can. And so I think, how could I not, when mm. so many women fought for the right to have, and not just women too, men as well. Plenty of men were fighting for these rights too. And, and so many different people will be standing on the shoulders of their generations of amazing people. But without them, we wouldn't really have the opportunities we have today. And I'm like, let's not waste them.
0: Mm. Do you think there's... um. Stigma is probably too strong a word, but but uh, ambition. Um, does, does that bring about some kind of judgments, some barriers? Like, how how does that um, how do you navigate being an ambitious woman?
6: Yeah, definitely. In New Zealand, we have a right. lot of what's called tall poppy syndrome. Do you know that saying? I've
0: heard that for yeah, An Australian friend of mine introduced me to that, so it's, uh, maybe it's a down under thing.
6: Yes, I think it's a down under thing we have. So tall poppy syndrome is the idea that there will be a tall poppy in a field of other poppies and you want Mm. to chop it down because it doesn't look like all the other nice ones. Um, (laughs) And we do have a bit of that in New Zealand. I think it's prevalent all around the world, but particularly in New Zealand, this kind of idea that you should be happy with what you have Mm. and grateful for that. And you don't want to be ambitious because who are you to go after your dreams. You should be helping everyone else. It shouldn't be, you know, it should never have a selfish, um, kind of means to it. But I think if we all go after the things that truly make us happy, we're going to inspire others to be that there's actually a beautiful Marianne Williamson quote that says, Mm -hmm. um, when you shine, you give permission for other people to shine. Mm. I'm good. I butchered it, but it's something like that.
0: Yeah. I I really buy into that phrase is, um, so you know you you've 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 chosen to use coaching which is a wonderful powerful tool you and I you know share the passion for coaching and you know why why is it that you're inspired then to to help people take action
7: mm.
6: i realize that it's like the core of so many issues so we have the internet now we have google you can pretty much google your problem and get a ton of different answers of how mm. to achieve it or your goal And there's just so much information about what to do, but then why are we all not having, why are we all not (laughs) achieved our goals yet? Like it comes down to because we're not doing the things. Mm. And for me, that used to be a huge problem. I really struggled with procrastination. I wanted to start a business. In fact, I tried to start many businesses. I had that starting energy, but not the follow-through energy. And once I figured out how to get myself to do stuff, I started documenting that process and sharing it online. And people were like, how did you get yourself to go down to the mall and just ask strangers to subscribe to your YouTube channel? Mm. Like, and I was like, well, I've got all the tools now to get myself to take action. So I think that that's what's missing. And I think if we could help the whole world figure out how to get themselves to take action, yeah, we would have, I mean, we'd have a different climate. Like the whole climate issue would be a whole other thing, I think.
0: Mm, yeah, that's really powerful. I, I interviewed a guy called Dr. John Martini. And he was saying that, like creation, at a molecular level, is the synthesis of opposites, uh, a thesis and an antithesis. I, it's beyond my it's beyond my grasp, but I get the concept, which is that you know there is a, an element of duality and, and polarity in our lives, and obviously the opposite of, of action is inaction. And I know on your website, you have a quiz for procrastination, which I procrastinated doing, but <laughs> why, why <laughs> might, you know, I guess, you know, cause sometimes we can focus on taking more action, which is fine. But I, I also believe that there's like an elastic band at play, which means that sometimes to go more into action, we might have to ease the tension for the inaction. In your experience, what, what, what are some of the ways maybe you Uh, procrastinated or all the people that you you serve and work with and what are some of the core causes of procrastination
6: yeah well ultimately procrastination is an action even if it doesn't look like action it's usually some kind of action so our actions come from our emotions we do or don't do things based on what we feel And so the five things that I see that are the most common for people procrastinating, this is totally the quiz. So if you want to do the quiz, I'm going to share it (laughs) with you now, but there there are five emotions. And so what they are, are confusion, overwhelm, self-doubt, fear, and lethargy. These Mm. are the five key emotions. There are some others, but I think they mostly fall into these categories. And if you can identify what is the particular emotion that's holding you back which one of those five is the main one you're halfway there cuz so you're mm. able to go okay so I'm confused why am i confused what's going on or i'm overwhelmed or i'm just don't really feel like doing it i'm feeling lethargic that's kind of the um i think what i see mm. the main things that i've worked with my clients on that are holding
0: them back the 10th and final highlight from the always better than yesterday podcast interview sessions 2022 is with Dr. Vanessa Lapointe, who joined me for the second time on episode 201. I absolutely love Vanessa's heart and her mind for parenting, and in particular helping big people make sense of their little people. And on this episode, we made space and time to talk about fathers, to talk about dads, and what does it mean to be a good father. I know this conversation has been a blessing for all parents and carers who have listened to the episode. And if you haven't yet, I encourage you to check out episode 201 with Dr. Vanessa Lapointe, which you can find in the show notes. Here we go. But let's talk about your your most recent book, Parenting Right from the Start. I, I love this idea of parenting right from the start, but it almost implies that there's a wrong way. And I'd love to just start there. Like what are some of the the reasons that, uh, or some of the ways we are parenting the wrong way?
8: Well, you know what? It's such an, I love that you've asked this question. So when um, we were deciding on the title of the book, um, there's two ways that that title can be filtered depending on perception. One is parenting right from the start or the second is Parenting Right, right. from the start. <laughs> and so I didn't realize that it was going to be this total like subconscious mind play, and people's responses to the title would reveal some of the programming within. The truth is, we all run an I did it wrong, or I'm doing it wrong kind of program. And so you and I, and um, pretty much everybody reads that book title, it's Parenting right from the Correct, start. Correct. Yeah. let do parenting right from the start. And that reveals, I think, one of the um, major flaws that we come up against in how we parent that we believe there's a right in a wrong way. That we outsource a lot of that information to other powers that be, uh, be those parenting educators like myself or the preschool teacher or the neighbor or the Um, in-law. And when we um, surrender our swagger as parents that way, our kids um, eat it. It's our kids that suffer because our kids are just looking around now more than ever. And wanting to have their eyes land Mm -hmm. on big people who kind of have it going on Mm -hmm. so that they can trust them.
6: Why is trust important?
8: The... You have spoken with Gordon Neufeld, and so you'll know a little bit about um, how he speaks about uh, parenting. Mm. And one of the things that I love so much about Gordon's work is he talks about the concept of right relationship. Mm. So we're, as parents um, and our children, we're all in relationship, but is the relationship right relationship? And the idea about trust is that the parent is this stable backbone And the child in order to be surrendered to the process of growth and development must be able to rest Mm. into the care of the big person. And so if the child goes to lean in, because that's their stance, they have to be at rest in order to grow. Mm -hmm. And they cannot trust that the big person is there. The big person is steady and solid and stable and available and all those kinds of things. Then the child is going to, Mm
4: -hmm. and
8: the connection will be broken. And that's when we have a health child on our hands. And that child will be impossible to guide. You will not be able to parent because you have no context from which to begin that journey.
0: There we go. That concludes our 10 highlights from the Always Better Yesterday interview sessions 2022. I hope that our guests have served you well, that our conversations have expanded your heart and your mind in some way. And I just feel inspired to know that even if one thought has sparked something in you, it has created that one degree of possibility where all of a sudden nothing is ever the same and you go off and you do something that maybe you wouldn't have done and that has the opportunity and the potential to leave you and others better. That's what inspires me. That's what keeps me going. That's what brings me to having these conversations every single week on the podcast. If you would benefit from a conversation with me, please head to the website abty. You can find all the information about our coaching services, our consulting, you'll get all the links to our greenhouses, which are our environments where people grow. You can come and join us on Facebook, on Instagram, on TikTok, wherever you spend time with us. I promise to leave you a little bit better. I hope that our time spent together always leaves you a little bit better, whether it be in your heart, in your mind in your spirit, but most importantly in your leadership because it is in your leadership that you go out into the world and you positively impact other people. So the website is www.abty.co.uk Abty.co.uk. You can book in a call with me. Um, You can find out about our coaching services. Come be part of our Master Heart and Mind. Come and be one of our members and journey around what it means to be a heart-centered leader. Every week, you get one-to-one coaching with me. Um, There are also other coaching programs should you be interested in doing more of your heart work, doing more of what you love in this world, and having more of an impact, leaving a heart print. If you know someone that would be a good guest uh, for this show in the future, please just email me, podcast at abty.co.uk. And I wish you, your family, your loved ones, a very happy end of the year a time to reflect a time to look at all the things that you have to be grateful for your achievements the things that you've overcome the person that you've become and be inspired to all that you will go on to do the things that you will the person that you'll become and If you feel like you'll benefit from my support and having me in your corner, it would be my honour and privilege to walk alongside you through whatever 2023 has in store for you. Until then, thank you for being here. Always love.